Hey, everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hey. <laughs> Today on the show, we're going to talk about lying. Mm. Lying. Yeah. I mean, we're just going to lie the whole time. We're going to lie a lot. Just sit here and lie about shit. Just, we're going to lie. <laughs> no. And lie and lie. No. <clears throat> so this, this idea came to me because of the, you know, every now and then, because of the content that you and I look up for the show, <laughs> yeah. there's like, here's, Lots of lying. here's an article. So to give a little context into this topic and why I chose it, when I was working at the San Francisco Forensic Institute back in my pre-doctoral work, my supervisor at the time had been talking to me about Paul Ekman's work, who really, we're going to talk a little bit later about the show Lie to Me and how his uh, work was the influence of that show. And so who is Paul Ekman? He is basically the world's deception detection expert. So co-discoverer of microexpressions and the inspiration behind the hit series Lie to Me. So Paul Ekman has emphasized the role of identification in deception detention, detection. Excuse me. So basically he has given us the tools to be more accurate in assessing whether someone is lying or concealing or deceiving. And why is this relevant? But because we know, especially in, and Paul Ekman, by the way, is a, a licensed psychologist. So he has a background in mental health. And so how is that relevant to the work that Shannon and I do and some of you who listen? Well, because we know that clinical interviewing someone is as good as the accuracy is about as good as a flip of a coin. So we have about a 50% chance of accurately assessing the truthfulness of somebody's story. We need either other people's stories or assessment like testing, you know, other reports that give us more information. And so what Paul Ekman did is he, he began to study what might give us more accuracy, how it, how we might be able to assess the accuracy as to whether someone is telling us the truth. So he's an American psychologist, professor emeritus at the University of California. So that just basically means that he is retired, but he still contributes to research. So he was at the University of California, San Francisco, pioneer in the study of emotions and their relation to facial expressions. He was ranked 59th out of the 100 most cited psychologists of the 20th century. So a little bit of a genius. Mm-hmm. Also, something that he would speak about is simply telling a person incorrect or untrue information does not necessarily mean deception has occurred. In fact, there are common ways we mislead others without ever intending to deceive them. Such scenarios include memory failure, false statements, misinterpreting events, and then actually just believing the lie that we're talking about. There's two primary types of lies. We talk about, he talks about concealing and falsifying. So concealing would be withholding some information. So an example might be when asked by your significant other how your day was at work, you shrug it off and refrain from mentioning that you were actually laid off that day. The other would be falsifying, which is presenting false information as if it were true. An example might be when asked by your significant other how your day was at work, you say, great, I was promoted, when in reality, you were laid off that day. So a little bit different. That's a strategy. Uh, That's a strategy. I mean, I would think they're going to find that out. (laughs) What are some other ways uh, lies might be uh, classified? So misdirecting 
acknowledging an emotion, but misidentifying what caused that emotion. So example would be when being questioned about lying, you admit to feeling panicked, but claim it is due to the fear that your innocence is under suspicion rather than the truth, which is that you're panicking about being caught in a lie. And I think we see this sometimes with people who are getting interrogated, right? And they might have these really big reactions and they are asking for a lawyer and they're saying, you know, I, this makes me nervous. But for some of these folks, it's because they're misdirecting and they actually are guilty as hell. Mm -hmm. Another would be telling the truth falsely, telling the truth, but with such exaggeration or humor that the target remains uninformed or misled. So an example would be a teenager doesn't want to take their vitamins one morning and decides to flush them down the toilet instead. When their parents ask them if they took their vitamins, the teen sarcastically admits, no, I flushed them down the toilet. Like, duh, of course I took them. The teen states this with such irony that the parent is misled to believe that they did, in fact, take their vitamins. Yeah, I wanted to add, I happen to work in a program right now that deals exclusively with teenagers. Mm -hmm. And I was reading this article who it's by a PhD. Her name is Nancy Darling. Oh, I've and, heard of her. Yeah. Just to add to this, she quantifies the three types of teenage lies with just different language, but the same type of deal. So I just want to add that. Yeah. She says uh, lying by avoidance, lying by omission, and lying by commission. There you go. Right? So mm -hmm. avoidance, that's the So would commission word. be like this one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And we also know too, and, and maybe I'll want your input on this in a little bit, Shannon, but um, some of the, you know, nor like normalizing we can, with, with teenagers, especially, there mm -hmm. is somewhat of a normal developmental piece there. Yeah. Uh, the, the article that I read from her said that 86% of teenagers lie to their parents. Yeah. So, so just, no, yeah. no, it, it's, it's kind yeah. of, normalized. I was having a conversation, not to digress too much. I was having a conversation with a woman and her daughter that I see. I asked the mom, I go, when did you first start to feel like you couldn't trust your daughter? And she said, well, and there's this thing that happened in, you know, this younger grade. And I'm thinking she was a, she was a kid. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, like kids um, lie. Come on. Yeah. Like, okay. Well, that, <laughs> right. we unpack that. Okay. So, yeah. Half concealment would be another one. Admitting only part of the truth, allowing the liar to maintain the lie without ever saying anything untrue. So when asked about their company's performance, a CEO responds, we're doing great. We made twice as much money this year while failing to mention that they also spent four times as much money than oh the previous God. period and lost half their staff. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you this over here mm -hmm. without telling you excuse me, this over here. Yeah. And then lastly, incorrect inference dodge. So telling the truth, but in a way that implies the opposite <laughs> of what is said. Mm -hmm. Example, a friend invited you to their dinner party and asks how you liked their casserole dish. You mm -hmm. thought it was disgusting, but mm -hmm. you, you respond with a dodge saying, wow, I've never tasted anything like that before. <laughs> Deceptively implying you enjoyed your meal without actually saying anything. That's omission, untrue. right? Yeah. Like omitting the fact that it, you know. That's right. <laughs> With that incorrect inference, though, too, where it's like, yeah. Mm, yeah, you think I'm just talking like this was great, <laughs> but I never really directly answered the question. No, yeah. No. So Ekman, <laughs> uh, Ekman developed something called the neurocultural theory 
which I'm going to talk about. And then I'm also going to talk about the cognitive complexity approach. So these mm-hmm. are two different elements here. So according to Ekman, lying requires some level of cognitive effort. So a liar must be careful about what they say, the way they say it. A person who tells the truth has a much easier task. They only need to recall what was remembered. However, that does not mean that there is no engagement of cognition here. So one of the tactics that Ekman talks about, and it's used quite often in the show, uh, Lie to Me, which we'll talk about, is asking someone to tell a story backwards. It's an indicator of truthfulness as liars often rehearse their lies in order so they are stumped when asked to tell it backwards. Additionally, we know that by asking unexpected or unanticipated questions, they will be thrown off their script. So I've used this, uh, I personally have used this when I'm evaluating trauma and legal cases Mm -hmm. where I might be called to testify and they'll say, well, you just interviewed this person. Well, first of all, I didn't just interview this person. I interviewed 20 other people who were affiliated with this situation. So there's information there. But when I've specifically asked about the history of, of this event, I will then ask follow up questions that only someone who has actually real like experienced this event could elaborate on in a way that it you know that tells me more there's no fail safe but it gives me more of this idea like they're they didn't just pull this out of their ass Mm -hmm. that they're giving me not overly detailed information but they don't have to stop and think about it that they're able to just automatically answer that question right so I will ask things that they that may throw them off or things that they may not be anticipated to answer, anticipating to answer. Um, I've never used the the tell that story to me backwards because as, you know, forensic psychologists, we're not investigators, but they will use this oftentimes for interrogation techniques. And Ekman, you know, does, it makes a lot of sense to think about when someone is rehearsing their story, mm-hmm. whether it be conscious or, or I even think subconscious or unconscious, asking them to tell it backwards takes an entirely different skill set. So if the, if the event is true, then yeah, there might be a minute of like, okay, hold on, let me think about that. But they'll be able to do it because that memory is real and it's there versus a rehearsed act. Yeah. How I imagine it as a person thinking, oh my God, if I was to try to do that, they'd think I was lying because I wouldn't be able to cognitively remember. I think that's a really natural instinct for yeah. those of you who might be going, I would, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. People are going to think I'm lying. Mm-hmm. I think one of the nuances, and you tell me if this is inaccurate, but if it's a true story, I can remember the major bullet points going backwards. Yes. You know, and that's, that's right. I think, all they're looking for. It's not like, oh, let me get every detail that's backwards. Right. It's more like this happened, this happened. Oh, and then, oh, yeah, that came next. And then, that, you know, like it's that's not right. as tight like as the you order think. of yeah. the deep. It might be yeah. like, well, did this happen before or after? In a traumatic event, you that would be very symbolic. Yes. And you wouldn't forget that because part of that is also like there's somatic feelings attached to that as well, right? Right. Like that's how the order is really important because oftentimes it's the order of things that creates that trauma. So, yeah, yeah I agree. I don't think they're like, well, you said blue socks and he's wearing red. <laughs> yeah. I don't Especially think it's like Especially with that. trauma victims, but as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, that's another thing too. We know trauma can come out differently. The story can change. So this gets complicated too when we think about 
pathological liars who lie so effortlessly and without conscience or consciousness that I would wonder, you know, if, if it's someone more psychopathological and they're really difficult to assess accurately through an interview, I wonder if they'd be able to do it backwards. Yeah. It's It's hard to know. Yeah. Yeah. I, maybe I'll look into his, I'm, I'm actually, I just buying his book. I'm going to read it. So, um, once I'm done with it, I'll, I'll bring up some stuff on the show. Great. So the what is the cognitive approach to lie detection? So uh, it's basically simulating an episodic event or a story requires access to the executive control process involved in suppressing the truth. One, to, pro- to produce a lie that is plausible and coherent, it takes cognition. Two, how will this lie remain consistent with future facts? That's a lot to hold, Yeah, right? You have yeah. to, this is where a lot of people get caught lying yep. because their facts don't align or they're like, yep. wait, the last time she talked about this, this doesn't make it, doesn't add up. No. You be very sophisticated. Three is monitoring reactions around looking deceptive as well as you know, listeners reactions. So you're like paying attention to how you might be coming off, how they might be reacting to what you're saying. And then four is suppress the truth while all this is happening. Okay. For a non-psychopath, that's a lot. Yes. (laughs) It's just a lot having to deal, you know, everybody's told a lie, right? So everyone can remember when they tried to tell a lie. Yeah. And (laughs) whether you were young or old, when you tried to tell that lie, it's like, all the emotion that comes up, your heart's beating, you're wondering if you said it right, you're trying to look nonchalant, you're watching them. It's a lot. It is a lot. It's often 99% of the time not worth it. That's absolutely, it's really a lot of work. <laughs> and especially work. if someone's pathological in their stories, oh my you know, they're lying so much that after a while it's like, if they aren't good at the cognitive piece, people yeah. are like, this is not adding up. Yeah. So what they say about, if someone's using this cognitive approach and they're able to master it, what are some things that we might do right. to see whether this person, you know, kind of breaking through this ability? So they talk about the imposing cognitive load. So cognitive load concerns the demands placed on a person's cognitive resources. For instance, environmental distractions, noise or strong emotions, um, decrease the cognitive resources available to a person trying to recall the details of an event. So if you think about really intense interrogation, they will use lights, they will use sounds, they will do things to decrease that person's uh, resilience to leave, their- you, leave you alone. Uh, yep. Next week, I'm going to talk about a documentary that I watched. Okay, they, they freeze out. It's really specifically in line with this topic. Honestly, they leave the interrogation room really cold. Oh, they make it yes. really cold. Yep, or really yep. hot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they might try to decrease the person's resources, right? The other thing would be to, and this is what I was talking about, what I do in my interviews is encouraging the person to say more. So people who tell the truth can quickly provide more relevant information. Liars, in contrast, will have to fabricate additional details. And so therefore, liars are more likely to make mistakes and give details inconsistent with the information already provided or the verifiable facts of the event. And they shut down. 
they will very much shut down, especially if you start to ask them, like, I just want to go back and clarify this because um, it's not, you know, making sense to me. You'll see them have a reaction. Yeah, I often coach my supervisees with the teens that they treat. Mm -hmm. I'll say just come from a place you can be authentic. It's not an interrogation. And if you keep mindful of coming from a place of intense curiosity, that's right. And if you just ask questions along your curiosity, they will self-select. Yep. It'll be that's, pretty that's obvious. absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. And then three would be what we talked about also unanticipated questions. So compared to liars, truth tellers will answer these questions more quickly and consistently and provide more information. Or just say, I don't remember, or I don't know, that, yep. like a tr- truth teller is much more likely. They to won't go, embellish. I have no idea. They will <laughs> not embellish. No memory of that. That's right. You know, there's a lot here. I'm not going to go into all the, there's so much more around the, the cognitive approach. And there are a lot of really great articles and and research and statistics on the effects of all of this but it's a big topic this is a great place to start it is and so I thought we would talk a little bit about Paul Ekman's influence on the show Lie to Me starring Tim Roth who they changed his name in the show but he's essentially playing Paul Ekman and and um I loved, you know, I I haven't watched all of it, but I went back and I started watching season one again. And it, what a great show. It is a great show. There's three seasons, I believe. And so it didn't go very long, which I thought was such a disaster. Yeah. yeah. Such a bummer for me at the time because I did watch it and I loved it. It was right up my alley. It's very, Tim Roth is very charismatic. Mm -hmm. He's an excellent actor. You not only get very excited and interested in the dopamine hit from how he works, which of course is escalated. We understand that that's probably, that's not the way it actually goes. It's a heightened reality, but he does like Kathy was saying, like he does use the real techniques. The writers of the show really. I think Ekman's and a producer on the show. Tried to yeah. stay congruent with the work and really involved him in that. Mm-hmm. And Tim Roth is so charismatic, but you also over the, I've, you know, truth be told, uh, I have watched that show through like three or four times. It used to be one of my, like throw it on on a Sunday and do other stuff and watch it along the way. And so I'm pretty familiar with it. And they get into a, there's a personal piece of the story as well. So you get all of the stuff mm-hmm. Kathy's talking about, like lots of techniques and stuff. And if you get more interested and in, you can read his book and do more research. But then there's also, you know, like Tim Roth has a marriage that didn't go well. And, a you know, and a girl, there's a woman that works with him on the show and it's really good. It's just really good. I like too that they, my partner and I were talking about this too, where in house, like the, yeah. the character, you know, he ends up in this love affair with Cuddy and, and it, and it's fine and all that. But I love that this show really just focuses more on like his work and it doesn't get become overly romantic. No, 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 no. He's um, not a, I mean, he's a bit of an, he's a narcissist himself. And they go into that. They go into that. And that's an interesting piece of this. In other words, it's kind of that idea of the antihero where where we like an antihero because he's riding the line between being what he's studying. So the show, I don't know Paul Ekman personally. So the show, the way they've made the character exciting is that they've made Tim Roth's character 
on the line between using his power for good or evil. That's right. And that's what's so enticing about House or this yeah. or, you know, is that we we understand the shadowy side mm -hmm. there and there's narcissism mm -hmm. and there's, you know. And a there's a deep. <laughs> there's a deep cynicism just about humans yeah. like from again I don't know if this is true about Paul Ekman but like you were saying Tim Roth's right. characters there's a lot of cynicism around humans there's a line in the first one where his his partner says something like his work partner says something like she mentions something about well what should I do mm -hmm. and he responds with do whatever you want. Isn't that what most people do? Yeah. And so, you know, there's a, there's, there's also, her, you can tell that underlying whatever he went through with his wife or whatever, like mm -hmm. that's all left there. He doesn't mm -hmm. trust. Yeah. And I, I really, I really, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Absolutely. I, I relate to that in the sense that, especially in the last 15 years working in this industry and having chosen populations that are um, substance users, teenagers, people more with personality disorders. Like, there's just a lot of lying. <laughs> yeah. So I understand there's just, if you know anything about psychology, those populations have a lot of fabrication and, and out of uh, many times out of a sense of survival. And I understand that I'm deeply empathetic with lying. So mm -hmm. it's, it's just, I relate to that character on some level and that's maybe why I like him as well is, it's just like, don't worry, I, you know, lie to me, don't lie to me. You know, like mm -hmm. he's got that. And also I want to mention you're talking about Dr. Jillian Foster, who's sort of his his female yes, thank counterpart you. Mm -hmm. on the show. And it's played by Kelly Williams. And I don't know if you guys watched that old show like ER. I think she was on ER. Wasn't she on The Practice too? The pra She's yeah. been on a bunch of stuff that was like, I think, 90s. And I really like her. And she's, she's very good, good in this part yeah. because she's his empathy. Yeah, you know, that's a great way she to say comes, that. She comes to it with, they had to give her, to make this work, because he's so presenting as selfish and controlling, and like he's the one, and he's the only one that can do it, and he's got to hold all that responsibility, et cetera. And she really represents the person in his life that like empathizes with him, but also empathizes with everyone else and gives him a humanity. Just like on House, he has his other doctors, and they represent like a more hum humane, non-sociopathic kind of situation. And mm -hmm. she provides a really great balance. But they get along. Way, yeah. They do get along. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way of saying that because she absolutely plays that part. And then a very, very, very young Monica Raymond. Not yeah. that she's old now, but right. it, like, pri you know, even New before. The career. Yeah, before Chicago Fire and all that. So yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a great cast. I, 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 I recommend the series if you have not watched it. Agreed. Yeah. And Paul Ekman was involved, you were saying. I think so. so. Yeah, I don't I don't know if he's a producer, but I know I saw his name in the credits, so I'm sure that he's had least, an influence. At least consulted in the yeah. beginning and and you never know how involved that was or not. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Interesting. Thank you so much. Maybe yeah. this is a topic we will follow up on. I think it's an interesting one. It is. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. <laughs>